fellow students, if you would open to Revelation 3, we're going to be covering the sixth of the seven churches today. Uh, this is the church in Philadelphia. It's the sixth of seven. Uh, these churches, as you recall from a couple of weeks ago, were real churches with real people and real problems. Some of these churches, you look in the mirror and go, I can relate to that. I've done some of that stuff in my time. These churches also, remember, represent seven kinds of churches. So when you look throughout church history, you're going to see these types of churches that exist throughout history. And you can almost map churches, uh, even in the city today, based on these seven types. It would be fascinating to me, or as John Stone would say, intriguing or remarkable, if Jesus wrote a letter to Valley Baptist Church. What would he say if there was, if one of these seven was to the church at Valley Baptist? Zoop, here's the letter. Wonder what he would have to say. That would be an intriguing opportunity. So we see many, many different kinds of churches as you read these seven. You know, some churches are very, very uh, firm on doctrine, but they're really short on love. Some churches are great at loving service, but they compromise the truth and they've got the social gospel and that's all I have. Some churches in parts of the world suffer persecution to the point of death, even today. And some churches um, are, live so much like the world, they will never, ever be persecuted. There's nothing to persecute, right? Because they don't stand for anything. Some churches tolerate evil right in their own congregation. Put up with it like church in Thyatira. Some churches think they're poor in money and wealth, but Jesus says you're rich in faith. You're rich in power. And many affluent churches in America today, on the spiritual balance sheet, they would be bankrupt, okay? So how the Lord of the church views the church is very different than how we as people view the church. So we're going to study the church in Philadelphia today. This is only one of two churches that received no criticism, no criticism. This church, the missionary church, didn't receive any correction from Jesus Christ. He only has good things to say about this church. Now, if you're adding, you know that there's how many churches? Seven. How many of them have only good things to say about them? Two. So two out of seven are pretty good, and five out of seven are really rotten. Is that the law of averages in churches? Five out of seven need some work, and two out of seven are being obedient and doing what Jesus told them to do. It's kind of interesting to take a look at that. It almost seems like the selfish, sinful church is probably more common than the suffering, faithful church, which is really good news for us because we are all broken people, and that's why we're here, and Jesus Christ heals us and makes us well. Go to... Um, Chapter 3, verse 7, if you would, it says that to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. Now, angel here, as we remember last week, we said is angelos, which means messenger. This probably means there was a group of seven pastors or seven leaders in Patmos with John. And he wrote a letter to the church and he said, this is the letter that you're going to take to your church, to the pastor. So each one of these leaders of the church got a letter. And they were going to their church, and they were going to read that letter in front of the church. I've often wondered, what does the church feel like when they bring and they say, the Apostle John wrote a letter from Jesus Christ to us, and here's what he has to say. And I'm sure if the, if the pastor had already read the letter, he might say, uh, you might just want to put your seatbelts on. Just, just, just saying. You know, I've read this thing, and you, you know this is a serious letter at that point. So each one of these pastors brought the letter to the church and read it, and all these cities, as you recall from Rob's map last time, were on the Roman postal route. So they were very, very logically sequenced in terms of how they showed up. Now, the city of Philadelphia was located about 28 miles southeast of Sardis. If you look around the curve, remember Patmos is an island. It's about 15, 20 miles offshore. That's where John wrote this letter where he received the revelation from Jesus Christ. The first church is Ephesus. Remember, we talked about that. It's a seaport. Ephesus is really the mother church of most of these churches. Ephesus was the founding church. Paul spent two and a half to three years there, and the gospel went out all over Asia Minor. By the way, if you don't know your geography, that's western Turkey. That's western Turkey, and Patmos is in the Aegean Sea, and right across from that is Greece and Athens, etc., etc., so we did Ephesus, then Smyrna. That was the suffering church. We went to Pergamum, the church that was married to the world. The church at Thyatira that had tolerated gross immorality. Sardis was a church that was doctrinally pure, but there was no love in that joint. You could have burned it to the ground. It was so dry. And now we're in Philadelphia. Just You can see the postal route. You just follow that line down. And next week, Lord willing, we'll be in 
Laodicea at that point in time. So the city of Philadelphia is about 28 miles a little southeast of Sardis. It was founded about 189 BC by the, a king called Attalus, who at the time was king of Pergamum. So this town was founded by the king of Pergamum about 190 BC, and he had a very close relationship with his brother, very loving relationship with his brother. So they nicknamed this king Philadelphus, which means lover of a brother. Lover of a brother. And so that nickname became the city's name, Philadelphia, which means what? The city of brotherly love. Now in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, we call it the city of brotherly shove. Because this, you know, this you ever been to Philly? After dark, it's an interesting place. Let's put it that way. Actually, there is a lot of love there, but it is an interesting place after dark. So the, the city of Philadelphia, this whole region, is very, very active on an earthquake fault. There's a major earthquake fault that runs right through this place. And earthquakes, and as a consequent, volcanic eruptions were very, very common in this whole region. And because of that, there was a very fertile farming region, because you know when you get volcanic ash, that's hugely wonderful soil to plant stuff in. Philadelphia was um, uh, a city that was really, the surrounding region was viticulture. They had acres, hundreds and thousands of acres of grapes Lots and lots of grapes because the soil was so good. And Domitian, the Greek emperor of the Roman Empire, they had a shortage of corn, so he told them at one point in time to rip out half the vineyards and plant corn. Corn doesn't grow too well there, but vineyards do extremely well there. Even today, there's a lot, a lot of vineyards there. So the city proper was built on a slope that overlooked this large valley. The city had been destroyed so many times by earthquakes, they just kept rebuilding it and rebuilding it. But the city of Philadelphia was founded for a very specific purpose. You know, some towns come into um, existence by accident. Philadelphia was a planned community like Irvine. It was strategically located on the borders of three regional powers, Mycia, Lydia, and Phrygia. And it was a border town and it was planted there on purpose to be a missionary church for Greek culture. The Greeks put Philadelphia there and they said, we want to spread Hellenistic Greek culture, Greek language into Asia Minor, into Western Turkey. And to do that, we're going to have a border town that's going to do that. And that border town is going to be named Philadelphia. And it worked extremely well because by 19 AD, the official language of this whole region was Greek. They, I mean, they had really done their job well at that point in time. It was also on a trade route that was a Roman postal road, so you had a lot of travel throughout the city. And in AD 17, this entire region was destroyed with a massive earthquake. Literally knocked down 12 cities. Most of the cities here uh, within this region were, were flattened. Philadelphia is one of them, and the city of Sardis was leveled as well. Now they rebuilt the city, of course, it had been rebuilt multiple times, but they literally had aftershocks in the region of Philadelphia for years, even decades. I don't know if you've ever lived with aftershocks. Anybody ever been in an earthquake? Okay. Aftershocks are rather interesting. <clears throat> you kind of expect them, but you don't know when they're going to show up, so you're still surprised when they come. Well, some of these aftershocks were very, very, very strong. And as a result of that, those aftershocks, a lot of people in the city didn't even live in the city. They moved out into the country in huts. You know, you live in something that when it falls, it doesn't kill you. So it was, it, it really, had changed the nature of the city of that quite a lot. We don't know a lot about the church. At the founding of the church, we don't know anything other than the fact that it was probably an offshoot of the Ephesian church. So remember, Jesus follows a very specific format when he goes through these seven churches. He tells us the name of the church. He tells us what the name means, the city of brotherly love. And now he describes the author. And remember that Jesus, the author of these letters, describes himself in different terms for each church based on what the needs of that particular church are at that point in time and his assessment of that. So Jesus describes his character to the church in Philadelphia and he gives them four different things. Let's take a look at them. Verse 7. And to the church, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is, what? What's the first one? Holy, who is true, who has the key of David. And here's what Jesus does. He opens and no one will shut and he shuts and no one will open, says this. So the first description is Jesus identifies himself as holy. Now what he's saying is, I am God. Because God alone is holy, correct? No one else is holy at that point in time. When you look at Isaiah 6 and you see Jesus, the Almighty God sitting on the throne, and there's the worship of heaven, and the seraphim are singing what? 
holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Uh, in Revelation 4, you see the four living creatures saying, holy, 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 three times is the Lord God the Almighty. So the word for holy in Greek is hagios, H-A-G-I-O-S, hagios. And it literally means to be set apart, to be set apart, to be different, to be unlike anything else or to be other. I want you to think of the creator and the creation, right? Now, you and I live in the creation, right? We have this space-time universe, right? This universe that consists of planets and stars and galaxies, etc. That is the creation. God is the creator, yes? Is the creator uniquely different than the creation? Absolutely. That's what holy means. Completely different from the creation at that point in time. So he's set apart from his creation and he's completely separate from sin. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, they imported sin into the creation. At that point in time, it was perfect. After they sinned, it's not perfect. So the creator is different from the world because he's the creator of the world. Now, if you want just cross-reference, Isaiah 43, 10 says, God is speaking and he says, Before me, there was no God formed and there will be no God after me. Even from eternity, I am he. Isaiah 45, 11, It is I who made the earth and created man on it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands and I ordained their host. So, God is not limited by his creation. God is larger than his creation, yes? So, if that's true, that what that means is the creation really dwells inside the creator. So, the entire creation dwells inside God because God is the unlimited. And the creation is limited. I know it's hard to wrap your mind around having a limited universe. The universe is limited. There are boundaries to it. It's not an infinite spot. But God is unlimited. He's eternal. So he is unique, and that's what holy means. One of a kind, there's no one like him. Isaiah 45, 5 says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. See, our problem here is that earth is now a sinful spot, and it doesn't conform to his holy, perfect character. Question is, will it? Eventually. Eventually. You're going to see the earth conform to his character in the next six months, because we're going to go through the book of Revelation, we're going to see that. Now, holy, when Jesus identifies himself as holy, he's saying, I am God, but holy is also a very common description for the Messiah. If you read Mark 1, the demons called Jesus the Holy One. They knew who he was, right? Peter says in John 6, we believe and we know that you are the Holy One from God. Now the Holy One, Jesus Christ, demands holiness from us. Yes? Say yes. First yes. Peter 1, the Holy God who called you says, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. So... The first description that the author of this letter describes himself as Jesus said, I am holy. That's my character. This means that I expect you to be holy. And what is so remarkable is there's not one bad thing pointed out about this church. Was this a perfect church? No. no. Was it filled with sinful people? Yes. Did Jesus have anything condemnatory or bad to say about him? No. He only said good things about him. Now, that should give us hope at that point because we are not perfect people and we look at this church and we go, man, Jesus only said good things about him. It must have been filled with these super saints. No, nah, they were people like you and me. They had scar tissue. They go a couple of doggy breath. I mean, they drooled when they slept just like you do. I mean, right? So they're people. They're humans. Jesus loves them. They don't have to be perfect to get God's approval, folks. He approves of us because he loves us. So he says, number one, who is holy. Number two characteristic of the author, he says, who is true. God is true, yes. Jesus said what in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is the author of truth and the revealer of truth. Now the word for truth in Greek is aletheia, and it has the idea of genuine. That which is genuine, that which is real, that which is authentic. So what does our culture say? How does our culture tell you to find truth? They say, look in the mirror, right? Look in the mirror. Truth is whatever you want it to be. 
which means some of us got to be liars then because only one thing can be true, right? If something's true and the opposite is false and you say A is true and you say A is false, who do I believe? Well, we have to get rid of the human standard of truth and we have to go to the source of truth, right? Truth is whatever conforms to the character, being, and glory of God because he is the author of truth and he is the measure of truth. And you have truth right here. Yes? You have the written word of God in your lap. Jesus said, thy word is truth. If you want to know what truth is, the living word of God, Jesus Christ, is truth, and the written word of God is truth. You have an objective standard. You can read it. So the author says, I'm holy, I'm true, and I have the key of David. So you look at this and you say, well, what's the key of David? <clears throat> Remember when Gabriel came to Mary and he said, you're going to have a baby? He said, this child will be great will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So Jesus is the Messiah, and the kingly line of David is going to culminate in Jesus the Messiah. So Jesus here is saying, I have the key to David. Now, when you see a key, what's the purpose of a key? To unlock, and what else? To lock. Do you want a key when you lock your house? Mm -hmm. yep. I hope, right? So whenever you see a key in the Bible, it represents two things, authority and access. He who has the keys has control, right? Say yes. Yep. You like car keys or your key fob, same thing, right? House keys. Keys to the safe, you know the biggest key in our culture from a material standpoint? Passwords. Passwords are keys. Passwords allow access. Passwords prevent access. That's what a key is, right? So Jesus has the key to David. He has the authority to rule as the king because he's of royal blood. And he also has access to all the treasures of heaven. See, we look and we go, well, wait, man, if we had the key to open the door of heaven, how many treasures are waiting for us when we get there? Who has the key? Jesus has the key. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I am the key at that point. See, access to the heaven only comes by way of the Son through Jesus Christ at that point, and he only has the authority. So when he says, I have the key of David, it's not just I have the authority to rule. He says, I have the ability to access and unlock all the treasures of heaven for you. Right? Everybody wants the treasures of heaven, but you've got to go through Jesus to get them. Right? Okay. So, number four. He says, I'm holy, I'm true, I have the keys of David, and I'm the one who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. I was going to make this a point and decided not to do it, but have you ever got into an argument with Jesus about him opening a door in your life or closing a door in your life? Ever had that conversation? Here's a general principle. Never try and open a door that Jesus is closing. Your fingers will get caught in the jam. I've, I've got scar tissue from trying to stop Jesus from closing a door. I really want to go through that door. Nope, that door is being closed, Brad, right? I've run it. You ever run into a closed door? Yeah. You know, Jesus closes the door. You run into the sucker and you go, open the door, open the door. If he's closed the door, he's got a reason for it. And if he opens the door, he's got a reason for it. So he says here, when I open a door, no one can shut it. And when I shut a door, no one can open it. So the word open here literally means the one who is presently opening. So Jesus is presently, he's actively opening a door so no one can shut it. By the way, are, those, are there people who will try and shut God's doors? There are. We have a culture that tries and shut God's doors. In Matthew 23, you know who tried to shut the door? The scribes and Pharisees. Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, which means you're closing the door. I'm trying to open the door so people can come to me and be saved, and you're closing the door. And he said, woe to you. Never get in the way of God's opportunity to save people. Never get in the way of that. You want to be part of that. He also says, I'm the one who shuts the door and no one will open it. Remember in Acts 16, Paul is wanting to go to Asia to minister. What does it say? The Holy Spirit 
blocked him. The Holy Spirit closed the door. He tried to get in Bithynia. The Holy Spirit closed the door. Has God ever closed doors in your life? How did you know? Pardon? In retrospect. Have you ever got a smashed nose from running into the door and going, ooh, 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 maybe I shouldn't be going that way, right? God sometimes directs us by closing doors. Paul tried to get into two places to minister. The Holy Spirit stopped him, and then they were called to Macedonia. Remember he had the vision, come over to Macedonia, help us, and God blessed that ministry. I highly recommend you learn when God is opening and closing doors in your life. Because he does it every day. God is busy opening and closing doors in front of you as you walk this path of life. Learn to know when he's opening and closing them. And sometimes, as John said, we'll know it after the fact. We'll go, wow, I didn't know that was you doing that, right? And you wind up in another direction. Many times we want to go through doors that lead to paths that will take us to places where God doesn't want us to go. Right? We will even marry people that we probably shouldn't be thinking about. Right? We will take jobs that God knows down the road will have problems. But it looks good at the time. Because only God knows the future. So it's really a good idea. Before you go through doors or you don't go through doors, ask him. Ask him, Lord, is this a door I should be going through? Is this a door I should be passing, bypassing, you know? What is that movie, Monsters, Inc.? Remember Monsters, Inc., all the doors? Which door do you go through? What's on the other side? You know, God knows what's on the other side of the door. Ask him. Ask him, ask him, ask him. So Jesus possesses the authority to provide access or to prevent access, which is really, really, really good. Okay. So we have the name of the church, description of the author. Now we're going to hear his comments about the church. As we said, this is only one of two churches where good things are said. Verse 8, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus says, I know your deeds. By the way, Jesus doesn't have to read your diary or your Facebook page to figure out what you're all about. <laughs> Other people might have to, but Jesus doesn't. He knows your DNA because he created your DNA. So he says, I know, I know there's what other people think about you, but I know you because I made you, right? So he's all-knowing, all-knowledgeable, and he says, I put before you an open door. I've given you an open door. Here's the principle. An open door is an opportunity for service that Jesus entrusts you to faithfully manage. An open door is an opportunity for service that Jesus faithfully entrusts you to manage. So an open door is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to serve. For this church, it was an opportunity for evangelism. It was an opportunity to reach that following area for Jesus Christ. You know, this week, every one of you is going to have open doors. We used to call them divine appointments, right? You know what a divine appointment is? It's real obvious that God wants you to talk with this person. Or this person is supposed to talk to you. It's a divine appointment, right? If you've never had those, many of you have had divine appointments, you just know you're having them. Afterwards, you're going, how come I just managed to run into that person at the coffee shop? Well, I don't know. The Holy Spirit must have arranged it. The Holy Spirit arranges meetings in your life every week. You probably had five divine appointments last week, didn't even know it. You called it coincidence. And later on, you go, ah, that wasn't coincidental. I was supposed to talk to them, or they were supposed to talk to me. That's what he says. I've opened a door before you, and you have an opportunity for service. And it was, in this case, it was an opportunity for, to share Jesus with those people. When Jesus died, the, the, the temple was torn from top to bottom, right? Remember the, the curtain temple? Which means there was access. There's now access. It's an open door. So here's an interesting question. What am I doing with the open doors for service that Jesus has opened in front of me? There's open doors in your life right now. I don't know what they are. He knows what they are, and he's asking you to ask him what they are so you can go through them. By the way, there's also closed doors in your life. Have you ever noticed that we're much more comfortable with open doors than closed doors? <clears throat> Why do we like open doors more than closed doors? Because if the door's open, I can choose to go through it or not. Who's in control? I think I am, right? If the door's closed, 
option over. You're not going through that door. So just because Jesus opens a door, he's inviting you to come in and take advantage of the opportunity for service. You still have to choose to do it. You still have to make yourself available, right? He says, I not only open doors, when I open a door, no one can shut it. Satan can't shut it. The media can't shut it. The culture can't shut it. So Jesus' interesting question, why would, why would Jesus open doors for his church? Why would he open doors of service and opportunity? Here's the principle. Jesus opened doors for us when we do three things. When we trust his power, Daryl, I got a couple up here. When we obey his word and when we proclaim his name. Three principles. Jesus opens doors for service for us when we trust his power, obey his word, and proclaim his name. Go to verse number uh, eight. He says, you have a little power. You have a little power. This was a small church. This was a little church. They didn't have a lot of people. They only had a little influence. They only had a little power. Here's a principle you should know. God never depends on your power. He only depends on his power. Now, why would he not be smart to depend on your power? Because you don't have very much, right? I mean, we're all out of here at 80 years old or 90 or whatever. We don't have a lot of power, right? He depends on his power. Here's the problem. When we think we're powerful, who do we depend on? Us. When we depend on our power, what happens? We run out of gas, right? The ever-ready battery goes dead. The light goes out. We fail. When we know we're powerless, we depend on him, and then supernatural stuff occurs. It's interesting, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul's been given this vision of heaven, the third heaven. It said he was caught up to paradise, and then to protect him from pride, God blessed him with what? Thorn in the flesh. God blessed him with pain. God blessed him with a physical problem to keep him humble so he wouldn't get a big head. And Paul asked God three times, deliver me from this pain, to take this pain away from me. Have you ever asked God three times for something? Any, ever three times? Ever, any, any ever more than three times? Or do you quit at three? Yeah, some of you have been talking to God for three years about something, and you're going, come on, Lord, your hearing aid work? It works just fine. God says to Paul, I love this verse as long as it applies to you and not to me. When it applies to me, I'm going, oh. God says to Paul, my grace is what? Sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. I love his power. I'm just not real entranced with my weakness, right? Don't like that. Paul understands that God's power is made effective through human weakness. And he says in verse 10, and this is one I swallowed three times before I wrote it down. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with persecutions, with difficulties, with pain. For when I am weak in myself, then I am strong in Christ. I love the idea of having supernatural strength through Jesus Christ, but in order to be there, you have to be humble. And that usually for most of us means we have to come to the end of ourselves. And God knew what Paul needed. And I use the word God bless Paul with pain on purpose. Sometimes you will grow in your spiritual life the most when you're in the middle of pain. Right? Because when we're in the middle of pain, what do we do? We trust him. And we trust him because we don't have any options. If we have options, we'll exercise those options before we'll come back and trust him, won't we? We'll tend to trust in ourselves. Paul said, power is perfected in weakness. So Jesus is telling this church, you don't have much power, and that's a good thing. Because now you're depending on my power. That's a blessing not to have much power. He says, number two, not only to have much power, you've kept my word that means to guard, to preserve, to keep. He said, you've kept my word. This church had a habit of consistently obeying whatever God told them to do. You have any children like that? Did you ever have at least one child that routinely obeyed? Were you the child that routinely obeyed? Yes. <laughs> and told the truth. <laughs> Your noses are just growing, I'm telling you. Hey, Pinocchio, how come your nose is growing, right? I mean, you know, yeah. 
Our culture tells you that obeying anybody but yourself is stupid, right? Why would you obey anyone, let alone God? I mean, that's foolish and ignorant. No one tells me what to do. You know why we don't want to obey God? Because we're pretty convinced that God won't give us what we want. He might give us what we need. And we don't want what we need. We want what we want. And when we get what we want, more than half the time, later on we go, I wish I never asked for it. You ever ask God for something and he blessed you? He, find, he gave you what you wanted. And then later you said, who was the idiot that asked for that? I can't believe I got that. Well, you're the one who asked God for it. And sometimes he actually gives you what you want to educate us, right? We forget that God's commands are designed for our own good. 1 John 5, 3 is a great verse. It says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. What did Jesus say in Matthew 11? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those of you who have been walking with Jesus for years, is obedience difficult? Does obedience bring you joy? Does obedience bring you peace? Does obedience bring you harmony? Of course. Satan is the liar. He says, do your own thing and be your own boss. And when you do that, you keep running into closed doors all the time. This whole culture is trying to do their own thing and it's disintegrating. Because Satan has deceived people into thinking God is not a good God. Remember in the Garden of Eden, God gives them the whole planet, right? He says, I made everything for you. Everything except what? One tree. Only one tree. Satan comes along and says what? God's not a good God because he won't let you eat of that one tree. They got the whole planet, right? You ever had that conversation with God? God, you won't let me do this one thing. God says, well, I've given you millions and millions of things to do, but, you know, if you marry that person, the outcome's probably going to be negative, and we don't want to hear it, right? So we eat the tree, right? We eat the fruit, just like Eve did. She bought the lie that God was not a good God. You know, the truth of it is, our Heavenly Father knows what's best for us. Yes? Does He know what's better for you than you do? Uh-huh. Yeah. We just need to be reminded of that. When He says, do this and you'll be blessed, and don't do that or you'll be suffering, you know, believe Him. Believe Him. God's commands are an evidence of His love. God's commands are an evidence of His love. So He says, number one, you don't have much power. So you're depending on me. Number two, you're obeying my word. That's a good sign. Number three, you haven't denied my name. Haven't denied my name. This church is loyal. In the face of persecution, they were under, under the gun. They were loyal. They didn't deny him like Peter did. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So this church was not ashamed. They stood up to the opposition. Now, because this church didn't have much power but depended on God's power, because this church obeyed his, God's word, and because this church didn't deny his name, in verse 9, he's going to give them two promises. He said, I'm going to cause those of the synagogue of Satan. Boy, that's a place you don't want to go to school. Don't go to school at the synagogue of Satan. Who say that they are Jews and they are not, but lie. When Jesus calls you a liar, you're a liar, right? <laughs> Behold, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. So the synagogue of Satan. There were Jews who had rejected Jesus and crucified him. Actually, the Romans did the crucifixion process. The leadership of the Jews had rejected Jesus. By the way, their sins didn't put Jesus on the cross. You know who sins put Jesus on the cross? Brad Hannock's. And yours, right? Look in the mirror. We're the ones. But... They were physical descendants of Abraham by blood, but they were not spiritual descendants. Abraham was a man of faith. Abraham knew Messiah and trusted him. And this generation of Jews and the following ones had rejected Jesus. And to oppose the Messiah is to ally yourself with Satan. These Jews had opposed the Messiah. They hung him on the cross. And they had allied themselves with Satan. And that's why Jesus said they're from the synagogue of Satan. And these Jews were persecuting this church. They were under the gun from the Jewish community. Jesus said to this church, because I, you have been faithful, I'm going to work through you to convert these Jews into followers of me. Now, that is an amazing promise. 
if you look throughout history, faithful churches that obey what God says, trust his power, and proclaim his name, many times have had influence into the conversion of the Jewish community. That's a great stewardship that the Lord gives very few churches. It's intriguing. We're going to dedicate, Lord willing, next Sunday night, the uh, Olive Drive campus. And as most of you know, that Olive Drive campus is not something this church went looking for. We, I'm on the board of directors here, and we were looking to build a $6 million building for the youth. And we were just about ready to sign the contract to build that building when the Holy Spirit just literally bought a 34-acre camp campus with 12 buildings into our lap. And you're looking at going, why would God come to Valley Baptist Church and say, I'm going to open a door for you, a rather large door, 34-acre door, right? And I'm going to give you the opportunity for ministry in this campus. Well, if you look at this church's history, Valley Baptist Church has a history of depending on the Holy Spirit. Amen? This church has a history of proclaiming the Word of God and obeying the Word of God and proclaiming the name of Jesus. God says, I'm going to open a door for you, Valley Baptist Church. I'm going to give you the stewardship of this campus to minister so that people will come to Jesus and that location. Now, you know what the message for us is? Don't drop the ball. You've been given the stewardship. Take the stewardship seriously, right? When you've been given an open door, what are you supposed to do? Go through the door. Go through the door. Be responsible at that point in time. So Jesus says, I'm giving you the opportunity to minister to these Jews who hate you, and I'm going to convert some. I'm going to convert some. They will come to know me, and then they will know that I love you. And we could spend hours on that alone, but I don't have time. Verse 10. Second promise. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. So the word perseverance here means endurance. Endurance means to remain under pressure. Hupomini, remain under pressure. How many of you have had pressure in your life? What do we want to do when we have pressure? We want to get out from under the pressure. We want to eliminate the pressure. You know, we want to blow the people up there to putting the pressure on us. He says, yeah, yeah, I know you. I know. I, I've thought about that. Yeah. Lord, I've got some strategies for those people. Painful ones, right? Remain under the pressure. So Jesus is our ultimate model for remaining under pressure. He endured the shame, the spitting, the scourging, the, the nails, the rejection by his father, and he was innocent. So the innocent one, who is the king, Messiah, he, pay, he calls us to endure as well. He says, you will be hated by all on account of my name, but the one who has endured to the end will be saved. Have you ever noticed, how many of you heard the saying, um, getting old is not for sissies? <laughs> Neither is being a Christian. It requires endurance. It requires remaining under pressure. We all want the easy road. Have you noticed that as you age, it does not get easier? It's not going to get easier. Get over your delusions. As you age, it's going to get harder. Say amen. amen. You know it is. Here's the good news. God doesn't depend on your power to get his work done. He depends on his power. So if power is perfected in weakness, we got lots of weakness to bring to the king. We just need to own it. We say, Lord, I, I'm weak. But with your strength, I'll accomplish what you want to accomplish. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. So Jesus makes an incredibly significant promise to them in the next few verses. He says, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come on the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. He's saying to them, because you've already passed the tests I've given you, the persecution, the hassle, the Jewish opposition, because you've obeyed my word, because you haven't denied my name, I'm going to spare you this future hour of testing. It's like in school. You've already passed the daily quizzes, right? You've already passed the weekly exam. You've already done all your homework. You've turned all your midterms in. You've done your class project. And your teacher says, you can skip the final. You can skip the final. You've already been tested all semester, and you've passed. You've earned a GPA to the point in time, I don't need to give you the final because it won't tell me anything I don't already know. 
I've seen your work the whole semester. That's what this is. Jesus is saying, you've already passed the test, you've been faithful and obedient, and you're not going to go through the final. By the way, the church in Philadelphia represents faithful and obedient churches throughout history. So this promise is not just to this local church. This promise that will avoid the final test is to all faithful, obedient churches that follow Jesus. Here's the principle. Faithful followers of Jesus will be kept out of the Great Tribulation. John MacArthur gives us a real helpful outline here. This test that's coming up is a future test. It says, I will keep you from the hour of testing, which is about to come. Get your pen out and underline those. About to come. So this test, this trial, this test is expected. It should be anticipated, and it's getting closer every day. It's about to come. It's on the horizon, but it's not here yet. Number two, this is a limited test. Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour, right? The hour, that hour, a very specific test, a very specific duration. It's a specific time frame. We know from Scripture it's going to last seven years. It doesn't last forever. Jesus says, believers, I'm going to spare you from that specific test. He didn't say, I'm going to spare you from trouble between now and then, did he? You going to have troubles in this world? Yes, he says, I'm going to spare you from that test, that seven-year test. So it's a future test. It's a limited test. It's also a test that's going to reveal and expose you. You know, when you take a test in this school, you know what they're trying to do? They're trying to reveal how much you know. They're trying to find out what's on the inside. Did you really absorb the material that was taught, or did you sit there and go into a brain fog and, we'll, well, we'll take a test to find out, right? So this is going to be a test that exposes, it's going to, be re going to reveal what's on the inside. Number four, not only is it a future test, a limited test, a revealing test, it's an inclusive test. Who's going to be impacted by this test? What's it say? The whole world. This is a worldwide test. Now, only the Great Tribulation qualifies as the test that will impact the whole world. It's the only worldwide test there is. It's not a local test. It's not a regional test. It's a worldwide test, and there's no exceptions. If you're on the planet during this time, you're going to undergo this test. There's no exceptions. He says a worldwide test. Now, some people argue that the promise means that Jesus, that Jesus will keep believers within or through the hour of testing. I'm going to get to that in just a second. The last one is this test is for unbelievers only. It's a test for, quote, those who dwell on the earth. Underline that with your pen. That is a key phrase in the book of Revelation, those who dwell on the earth. The earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth, are the unsaved people who forever reject Jesus as Messiah. The earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth, are people whose world is this, their home is here. They have no citizenship in heaven. Their father is Satan. They're at war with God. And the phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is used repeatedly in Revelation. And it always means unbelievers. Revelation 6.10, remember the martyrs that have been killed during their faith, during the, uh, during the tribulation. They say, oh Lord, how long will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So the people that killed the people for Jesus are those who dwell on the earth. Revelation 8.13, there's an eagle flying in mid-heaven and he says, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Revelation 11, 9, remember Jesus, God sends two witnesses, supernatural witnesses, and they get murdered, and it says those who dwell on the earth have a party. They literally send gifts to each other because these godly men have been murdered. Revelation 13, 8, it says those who dwell on the earth, all those who dwell on the earth will do what? Worship the Antichrist. So we know that those who dwell on the earth means unbelievers. So the hour of testing is for unbelievers and it's in the future. Believers are being tested when? Right now. In the present, right? They will be kept out of this future test. Now, I want you to know that this is a line in the sand that is hotly debated because what I'm advocating here and what Scripture seems to clearly teach is the pre-tribulation or rapture of the church. And when we get into a couple more weeks, we're going to open up Revelation 4 and I'm going to give you four different views on how people view future prophecy because there's multiple points of view on this but this seems to be extremely clear 
that the church will be raptured out of this planet before the, before the uh, tribulation. Now, the Greek word to keep out of is through ek, E-K, through ek. It means out of. This is the word that John uses here. I will keep you out of this hour of testing. The Greek word meaning to keep in is through in, E-N. It means you're going to go in the tri tribulation, but I'll preserve you once you're in it. That word's not used here. The Greek word to keep through is throdia. That would mean it's a promise that you're going to go through the tribulation and I'll preserve you through it, but you're going to go through it, right? And the Greek word meaning to take out, to take out, to save out of is eruek. It says, I'm going to go into, you're going to go into the tribulation and I will save you out of at some point in the tribulation, right? The word here is through ek, which means out of, which means you're not going to go in the tribulation, right? Which you ought to be grateful for. But it doesn't mean you won't have problems here. You're going to have problems here. In the world, you will have trouble. Verse 11. He now gives them an exhortation. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have in order that no one take your crown. Here's the principle. Don't be careless with your calling or it could cost you crowns. Don't be careless, I should put, or even casual. This nation is filled with casual Christians. Convenient Christians. I'll follow Jesus when it's convenient. You know something? Going to the cross was not convenient. You ever thought about that? Shedding blood to buy us back from the slave market of sin was not convenient. It was costly. So why do we take our faith so casually? Right? He says, don't be careless because I'm coming quickly. Now, you say, well, this was written 2,000 years ago, and he's not come back yet. I wouldn't call that quick. On whose timeline? Yours or God's? Most of us get impatient with Starbucks, right? So when God says, I'm coming quickly, you know, what he means is, number one, I'm coming suddenly. I'm coming unexpectedly. I'm coming without announcement. And when I come, stuff's going to happen really quickly, right? It's going to happen fast. He says, hold fast. Hold fast. He's, what he's saying is, you who have kept my word, proclaim my name, trust in my power, keep doing it. Stay faithful. Remain holy. Endure. Don't quit. Don't flake. Don't get distracted by the garbage of this planet. Satan will distract you before he'll attack you. If he can distract you into disobedience, my gosh, why not just distract you? That's easy. I mean, you know, just... Get on your favorite program and you can burn up four hours until midnight watching Letterman or something. I'm not saying Letterman's bad, but I'm saying if it keeps you out of the truth of God, you know something that's bad, right? I'm not saying you shouldn't watch TV, but if it costs you relationship with Jesus to do this stuff, you're being distracted away from truth. Just be aware. Be aware. So he says, hold fast. What you've been given, you've got to grab onto or it's going to get stolen. God will give you the power, but you have to use it. And he says what? Then order that no one take your crown. Now, crown here is the word Stephanos. Stephanos. Here's the picture. When you competed in the Olympic Games back in the day, or the Athenian Games, or the Ephesian Games, the winner always got a Stephanos, which was an olive leaf wreath, a laurel leaf, a crown. And you got that for what? Winning. Right? There was none of this, well, everybody gets a trophy because they showed up. You know, you enrolled in the class, of course you will get an A. You don't have to do anything. No, 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 no. If you're getting a gold medal in today's Olympics, you're going to work. Like for 10 years to get ready for it. As we talking about, Stephanos, it's a victor's crown. The result of the victor's crown, 1 Corinthians 3, tells us there's rewards in heaven. There's rewards in heaven for the victors, for those who don't quit. That's not eternal life. The crown of life comes from Jesus Christ. Your eternal life comes only from the blood of the Son, right? You can't earn your way in. But the rewards that you get once you get there, that's based on your deeds. That's based on your holding fast. That's based on your obedience to the Word of God at that point in time. So hang tight. Don't be casual. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar and a temple of my God. Pillar means strength, perseverance. God's going to honor you in the new Jerusalem. 
He says, you won't go out of the temple. That means fellowship with God will never be broken in the New Jerusalem, which is a wonderful promise. We're going to get into a lot of this stuff in much greater detail later on. And he says, I'm going to write on you, you overcomer, that's you in this room, I'm going to write on you the name of my God. Now, a name indicates character and ownership. I found it interesting today. In the 8 o'clock service, this young, young mother went up and her 9-year-old was going up behind her. You know what he had in his back? He had a name tag. Why would you put a name tag in the back of a kid? Tells us who they are and who they belong to. Right? We always put name tags on the kids, right? You know something? God's got a name tag on you. He says, you're mine. I bought you. You're part of my family. I adopted you into my family. I love you, and I call you my own. That's what he's saying here. This is a love letter. He said, I redeemed you from the slave market of sin, and I paid for your freedom. That's a wonderful treasure. And then he says the last one. He who has, let him hear. Now, here's the point. If you look at verse 13, he says, he who has ear, let him hear. I'm going to give you an opportunity right now to do what? Write down one thing. Only one thing that you will do this week as a result of what you learned today. Get a pen out. I'm going to watch you. Get a pen out. I don't care if you got to write in lipstick. Okay? If you don't write it down, it likely will not happen. And if you don't write it down, you'll walk out here and go, oh, man, that was really enlightening. Man, I learned a bunch. And I can tell you something, within 48 hours, 98% of it is going to be gone. Probably won't take that long. For those of us with early onset, yeah, it could be gone by noon, right? I mean, not a problem. So he says, if you got an ear to hear, by the way, hearing means doing in Scripture, write down one thing that you will do this week as a result of what you learned. So here's the summary. An open door is an opportunity for service that Jesus entrusts you to faithfully manage. So the question is, what are the open doors that Jesus Christ has put in my life? You've got open doors. Are we asleep at the wheel or do we see the open doors? Ask God to show you. Number, number two, Jesus opens doors for us when we trust his power, not your own, when we obey his word, not our will, and we proclaim his name and not brag on ourselves, right? Number three, Faithful followers of Jesus will be kept out of the great tribulation. That is a phenomenal promise. But, number four, don't be careless with what you've been given. You've got treasure in your lap. Don't be careless with this book. Don't be careless with the truth. You know what happens when you get casual? Casualties come from casualness. You're never casual on the front lines. If you're in Afghanistan and you're casual, you know what happens? You lose a leg. You step on an IED because you weren't watching. Same thing here. You're in battleground with Satan. Don't get careless with your calling because we want you to have crowns. All right. As Nancy says, and she'll remind me because she's looking at me, I tell you the truth because I love you. And now that you know, you're accountable to do.